kinky. Kinky. Kinky's okay. Oh, you're kinky. Kinky? Very kinky. 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 Ooh, discipline. Kinky. <laughs> Confess! 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 Hello and welcome to Kinky Confessions, the podcast. On this episode, we're going to meet Camden Champagne. Now, I first met her at a burlesque show, and I can tell you that she is one of the most incredibly talented performers, and I absolutely had a blast. I found out that not only does she love to perform in burlesque, but she also isn't afraid to be in front of the microphone. And in fact, this year in Perth Fringe Festival, she will be involved in four burlesque shows. I've put some of the details in the show notes. If you're in Perth, I encourage you to go check it out. Now, Camden is also in a long-term poly relationship, which we touch on and we hear all about. However, the first half of this episode, we're going to chat about STIs. Camden, by one in eight Australians, she has genital herpes. So she's been brave enough to want to come onto the podcast and talk about it. She's going to tell us what it felt like at the time of her diagnosis what it was like the first time she told a potential partner. We're going to talk about some of the mental health issues along the way, and we're also going to discuss where she's at now. She's kinky, she's poly, she's out having a good time, and most importantly, she wants to let people know that life goes on. You can still enjoy life to the max, even with an STI. So let's just jump straight into this episode and hear from Camden. This is Kinky Confessions, the podcast. Um, hello, hello audience, hello visitors. Uh, my name is Camden. Uh, I am a Perth local and my confession is that with an STI is not as bad as you might think. Not as bad as I might think. So, okay, over to you to just tell me about it. Yeah. Um, oh, look, approaching the topic of sexual health and life with an STI or an STD is always like, it's a very stigmatized one. So that was hence the big motivation to come on the podcast and actually talk about it because I've spoken at length, you know, in just my own private life. But I thought now's the time to share a bit more. So uh, about 10 years ago, uh, give or take, yeah, I was diagnosed with uh, HSV2, which is herpes simplex virus, known to most um, as simply the cold sore virus. Yeah, I have I have genital herpes, I have HSV too, and I've lived with it reasonably comfortably for the last 10 years. That's something that is medicated? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a, a lot of um, different options, which I, I may go into later, uh, but the crux of it, it's not curable at this stage. Basically, there's vaccine trials and stuff happening with the University of Queensland, but they kind of haven't progressed to the later stages of testing and stuff yet to kind of like get... I suppose I use the word like loosely like a cure, but, you know, to get to a stage where we have with the human papillomavirus, the HPV vaccines would be really, really great. And to the best of my knowledge, the HSV sort of treatment or vaccine from University of Queensland would be for people like me who live with the condition and would, yeah, I suppose the ideal is to sort of cure it or, you know, give our bodies the ability to fight and kill the disease. How do you tell people about that you're, that, you know, if you're meeting a partner or yeah. how does that work? Look, the mechanics of it are pretty simple. You, you tell them 
Yeah. Um, I've always worked on the approach of great honesty, and that is something that has taken a substantial amount of practice. And look, I'll be honest, it's been really quite hard. The first uh, person I ever disclosed to uh, fainted. He fainted. So I had to, um, and I can look back at with a bit of candor right now. Um, he, yeah, his blood pressure just dropped and he got really woozy, had to lay him flat on the ground, give him some water, make sure he was, you know, breathing and stuff. And yeah, before I left, but, um, yeah, the mechanics of, I suppose, disclosing to people, I actually, I got to a stage where I was really struggling with it because it's a really big vulnerable thing to be able to you know say anything about yourself to do with sex let alone something that you know carries great stigma uh in society but I actually went and chatted to a sexologist of all people and that really changed the game for me and their advice was you know keep it almost like chatting over a coffee sort of a casual that you know most times if you're saying you know, not even to do with sexual health, but anything sort of difficult or vulnerable that you're discussing with a person or a partner or a loved one, they will often mirror your reaction. So if you share something with someone and you are sort of, you know, you come across as like calm and knowledgeable uh, and, you know, assured about it, then, you know, I've found that in those moments, just in my personal experience, that it's more likely to go well, whereas I've definitely had moments where, you know, I have I cried, I've maybe sobbed a little um, before it got easier for me. Um, and those have been moments where it's been more difficult for the person that I've been talking to to process what I've been telling them. Yeah. So, yeah, over the 10 years, there's definitely been some big leaps forward in my own personal communication styles, which across the board has just been very beneficial for my life. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to go back probably, I think it'd be 15 years ago now. Mm. My partner at that time, we'd been dating for probably about three months. Yep. And it was very, not even, I'm not going to say casual, like we were flirting with each Mm. other for for months and months. Mm -hmm. And I just could never figure out how come it never went to the next level. Mm. And then she turned around one day and said, oh, look, I need to tell you something. And then we had that conversation. Mm -hmm. And to me, it wasn't a big deal. And she'd been, oh, I've been carrying this for months and months. And I I just Mm. didn't know how to have this conversation with you. Mm. And when she just turned around and said it, I was like, I don't, you know, thank you for, you know, appreciate your honesty. Mm. And that doesn't stop the relationship from going Mm. any further. And then the weight, you could just see that weight that was lifted off her shoulder. Yeah, I feel that. And we would have had protected sex probably for about three months. Mm -hmm. And then it was then unprotected. Yeah. I think over the three-year period, there was probably one instance in which I got a phone call off her and she just said, oh, look, I've had a Mm flare-up. I take my daily medication. I've had a Mm flare-up. So at least for the next month, Mm. it is you're not going down on me. You Mm -hmm. are not doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, And we will review it in a month. We can still have sex. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just with a condom. Yeah. Uh, look, everyone makes their own decisions and there's no, I'm not on this podcast to say that it's right or it's wrong to have protected or unprotected sex. Yeah. Everybody absolutely makes their own decisions. Um, my experience has just been to making sure the people that I've connected with or interacted with are fully informed and yeah. they can make a fully informed decision, decision like you did. And I 
feel every single bit of that conversation yeah. look on on a more personal level in like the last 10 or so years you know I've had maybe five flare-ups and you know for something like HSV it's very closely linked to like your immune system and you know anything it could be like if you've had cold if you're dehydrated or you're just very stressed very run down and you know for women or you know I suppose uterus owners as well um you know it can be as sensitive as you know when we menstruate yeah. you know any sort of change a uh, significant change can can trigger that you know and I'm not here to say like what someone should do or not do um get like all advice for treatment from your doctors or yeah. your medical professionals <laughs> oh Dr um, Google <laughs> oh don't I really did myself in trying to Google stuff like very very early after my diagnosis trying to find out stuff about HSV and to be honest that made it worse what made it better was asking my GP a yeah. different yeah just some different GPs for some different resources I'm like okay what are what are some reputable places that have either done research or good places that you would recommend that I look uh and that was when my knowledge really sort of yeah that that turned out to be a good place for me, whereas like, you know, your Mayo Clinics and Dr. Googles and, you know, your forums of like, you know, oh, this is wrong with me. What should I do? Like Go see a doctor. Yeah, go see a doctor. Don't do that stuff. All the lovely people, of course, at like, you know, places in Perth, like we've got sexual health HQ and things like that. Very, very judgment free space where I got diagnosed it was just at the time at my local GP clinic and yeah and look I really struggled going to the doctors and sort of having you know like blood tests and even like my regular pap smears and stuff like that after that but that sort of I found some really good GPs and some really good treating professionals and that has sort of worn off over yeah. the years but yeah it's it's taken me a little bit of time to you know even years ago getting something like my cholesterol tested or my iron tested or things like that you know you kind of worry of like what's gonna happen like something bad has happened you know I got a result I I wasn't anticipating you know in the past but you know things will be okay and ultimately what I've learned about myself living with an STI for you know the 10 years that I have is that things can be very manageable and that things can be okay and that movies like Team America have a lot to answer for um, in terms of the social stigmas and stuff that we have. I've generally found over the years that the friends of mine that have had STIs mm. and uh, HIV mm -hmm. actually take better care of themselves mm. because they've already realized, hang on a minute, I've got a, a blood disease, yep. whatever, however you call mm -hmm. it, yep, and, we'll, and we'll do a better job of their normal health mm. because they understand consequences of being run down being dehydrated yes. mm -hmm. all of these things in which all of a sudden mm. when you're not at 100 percent health things escalate very quickly yeah i i absolutely agree um it's certainly made me take things like you know the amount of sleep that i get a lot more seriously and you know putting more vegetables and water in my face <laughs> but you know we were talking very briefly earlier and whether we touch on it again um that i'm involved with a few fringe shows um, yeah. and one of them is a night at the opera so Queen, Queen the band, yep. and you know the the very late great Majesty himself, Freddie Mercury. You know he passed away of you know complications from HIV and AIDS, and you know Queen the band set up you know the Phoenix Trust after he passed, and they continue to you know do great work to contribute to you know research and quality of life 
and, you know, undoing some of that social stigma. And, you know, it's the second time I've hosted this show and, you know, HSV and HIV AIDS are in no way similar. Um, but you know, I, I very much appreciate, you know, having, I'm a, I'm a history buff and like it was the eighties and the nineties were incredibly difficult time for sexual health, particularly for for gay men um, and people who are experiencing, you know, the the AIDS ec- epidemic and things like that. So on the whole, sexual health information has has improved, but there, there still are quite significant stigmas there. So being sort of, I suppose, in the realm of someone like Freddie Mercury is a very humbling experience, I think, yeah. as a human being. And the, the advancement, I guess, in treatment. Mm. You know, if you have a look at HIV where it's, you know, not that it's curable, but it's... Mm pretty damn well close now that it's yeah not, people it's who not live with it can live have quality it. of life yeah yeah it's, it's tremendous and then to see you know where we're at now it's just incredible mm. on, on the the mental health mm. of sexual health yes is I, incredible i absolutely agree and i suppose my main motivation uh in coming on this podcast and wanting to talk about this thing and to talk about sexual health Largely in part, like, motivated by hearing um, my attention and her lovely husband coming yes. <laughs> on the podcast, who I hung out with last night, actually. Lovely, lovely people. Um, I was very buoyed by their openness and authenticity in coming on the podcast, so I'm like, cool. I, I want to do that. And the other sort of main motivation is for if I can just encourage maybe a few hundred people or, you know, some listeners, you know, to think of people who live with. STIs and STDs or, you know, experience a diagnosis in their sexual health journey um, to see us as people um, and to not forget that in that, whether it's a moment of disclosure or great vulnerability, you know, that we are people, we're, you know, doing it with openness and that we are, we're we're people too. And it's a very human moment. And I understand that that moment is checkered with a lot of fear. I even still, you know, experience moments of great insecurity about it. But um, then I remember I've, you know, I've, I've got this far and my, my quality of life is just absolutely magnificent. You know, I, I choose to medicate each day. So I just take, you know, one sort of smaller than a multivitamin yeah. sort of size pill. And, you know, it's the same medication that, you know, you came down with shingles that doctors would prescribe you. It's an antiviral. So it's just, it's very simple care. And I think that from memory, I'm going back a long time. I think that she would have realized at least 24 hours before Mm. having a flare up that she just knew what was about to happen. So when the partner that I was with, when I was diagnosed, he, um, he only let me know that he was experiencing a flare up when I had already told him that I was experiencing symptoms um, and that there was something, something not right um, yeah. down there. And um, yeah, look, I, I was very unlucky, but I also felt really extremely betrayed uh, in that moment. Um, and that, that was very, very difficult to deal with. Um, and I think that really sort of spurred my desire for radical honesty. I'm like, you know, going forward, you know, the people that I am intimate or have sex with or have a relationship with, you know, they deserve the honesty that I didn't get. So I'm 
counteracting my experience, you know, every single turn, you know, even on, you know, platforms like PetLife and even in my own polydating, because I'm polyamorous as well, you know, I'm upfront. I just put it out there upfront so it's not sitting there like a, a lump in my throat mm. or like a weight on my shoulders or whatever. And you know what? That's still really hard to do, but a vast majority of my experience has been pretty positive or just sort of straightforward of like, oh, hey, like, no, I just, I don't think things will work out. And for many years of, you know, into my life with an STI, that was incredibly difficult and it's very hard to not see it as a rejection of you. But I'm now definitely at the point where I'm like, it's their loss. Yeah. I want to go back and ask you just about the relationship when you mm. contracted it. Yep. Did this end it? Yeah, it did. It did? I think I had only been with him a few months. Yeah. And look, I was unlucky bugger of, you know, one of the first people that I have had unprotected sex with gave me an STI. Yeah. And yeah, it effectively did. And I remember one of the, gosh, I can't use any word other than insulting, um, was he came to me and he sort of said, you know, this is after I'd been diagnosed. He said to me, you know, that the spark had gone for him. And I remember because I I was obviously in the fog of something extremely difficult and like emotionally traumatic for me yeah. uh, in the early, early days of diagnosis. And usually I'm such a people pleaser, but I looked at him and I just said, you come here to my house. You tell me that the spark has gone for you. And you know, you, you lied to me and you gave me, you gave me herpes, get out of my house sort of thing. And then after that point, he's just like, he would, I think he, he felt guilty for sure, but he would sort of say, he's like, oh, it sucks that we're not friends or it sucks that we're still not in contact. And I'm like, don't talk to me. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm, I have no regrets about that situation. And I think I handled it as best I could in that particular moment. How long were you angry or are you still angry at him? Uh, I haven't been angry at him for years now. Yeah. So it's around about 12 years now. Yeah. Um, I haven't been angry at him for at least five of those years, yeah. I would say. Yeah, I just, I, I just feel nothing. Yeah. Like my, I've done such good work for myself as a person in that time that his presence in the story effectively ended years and years and years and years and years ago. Yeah. So that was when my my big journey sort of began. And yeah, I don't owe that to him. I don't wish him ill, but like I've done fantastic things since then and it's because I've wanted to, not because I'm a person with an STI. It's just it was a life-changing thing for me and we never know what will be life-changing for us. So I am really proud of yeah. how I've come in that time. Um. Parents. Parents. How was that conversation or are they aware? They are aware. It was very, very devastating for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. They just felt as parents that they couldn't protect me from sort of the thing, you know, you want to be able to protect your kids from the things that might harm them in the world. And yeah, yeah just there were feelings there that, oh, we should have protected you from this or that or the other. But, you know, it's no one's fault, really. Um, just always tell the truth and be honest yeah. the people around you really the fault doesn't lie with me like 
the fault doesn't lie with my parents. So, yeah. Mm. And when did you think that you were brave and where you were able to then be an advocate and have that strength to be a voice? Mm. That definitely took me years. It was something that gave me comfort very early uh, in my diagnosis journey was a friend of mine, she came to me and she just said, oh, I have it too. And, you know, she shared a bit about how she had, you know, contracted um, HSV as well. And she's just like, I know how you feel. And that was a really corner turning moment for me. I knew that I wasn't alone because I was trying to process so much of this early after diagnosis by myself. And like, because I was living at home at the time, no one really around me, not even like family, best friends, no one, not even I knew how to process all of this. But that was sort of the motivating point that made me start my therapy journey. Yeah. And that was, it was literally life-saving. And over the years, like, you know, I'm still on my therapy journey. 10 or so years in now. Um, Shout out to everyone on their mental health journey. I hope you've drunk water today. Um, (laughs) Second bottle. (laughs) Second bottle. You know, I'm still on that therapy journey and that has been very, very not, I think it's past the point of like for that particular happening in my life, it's past the point of like, I suppose, healing. But now it's sort of been like a reinforcement and affirming journey for me, for me as a person, you know, and one of the things in my therapy journey is that, you know, if anyone sort of does schema therapy um, or anything sexy like that, I'm a um, cognitive behavioral therapy poster child. <laughs> you know, it's, I felt very defective. And, you know, even through instances over the last few years where I've gone through periods of, you know, going for a lot of job interviews or getting knockbacks or like, even if it's on occasion, like a knockback or a performance that I was particularly attached to, which is like, oh, you know, it really hits you. And you're just like, oh, you know, I should have been better. Like I could have done better. Like it just, not that it has anything to do with anyone else knowing that I have an STI, but there's still that feeling of defectiveness of like, oh, you know, just like, I'm not good enough. Like it still sort of like stings a little bit yeah. Um, every now and again, but then, you know, I sort of, I do my best to remind myself very regularly and my loved ones, um, my people do a great job of reminding me that like, I'm, I'm very enough. I'm very good. And you know, the fact that I have an SCI has nothing to do with the fact I didn't get a job or a performance or anything like that. Like it's not on the checklist for any of that. Like, so yeah, it's, that's been part of the affirming journey and sort of the wider experience of, yeah, living with an STI. Wow. Mm. You're a very bright, bubbly, you know, you, you have great presence. Thank you. And it's a, you know, well, I can see the bravery in having the conversation and, and yeah, you know, this is years and years later after you mm. first have you know, come out, let's say. Yeah. And um, it's still challenging you mm. to talk about so those first that first month when you told that first person who mm. was it oh it was um yeah just a, a a male that i thought i was going to be i suppose hooking up with yeah um and you know what it didn't happen and you know he he was the one that fainted and you know in the moment in telling him it was absolutely not funny but i killed him and so I got him upright and breathing and better blood pressure and things like that. But, you know, on the way, way back to my car, I cried walking all the way back to my car. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Because this is the first time you've told someone and this is the outcome of it. Yeah. Um, truly had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. So then the second person, hopefully that went a little bit easier. That went a bit better, yeah. But, you know, honestly, between diagnosis and I suppose having sexual intimacy with someone else, it was literally years. Yeah. Literally years. I just had no interest in sex, sex and intimacy. Like, I was just pretty broken as a person yeah. on the whole. So um, I didn't come back to being intimate with anyone for, I think it was, yeah, like three years, give or take. Yep. And everyone has their own pace uh, with things like that. I just, and I can say this with the benefit of hindsight, I just wasn't confident enough yeah. to do that. And I was, I was so scared of being the person that would pass it on to someone else. And I didn't want to be that person. Yeah. So. so it's three years later. Mm. This was the, also at the start of the mental health journey as well? Yeah, the mental health journey, the therapy journey kind of began um, within about six months of my diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was not coping. So I went back to my GP and she recommended um, a mental health care plan and got me referred to a psychologist. And, you know, for the first few sessions, I just straight up cried. But that was a really positive that became, became what was a really positive point in my journey. This is why I'd love doing the podcast because mm. there's going to be someone out there that's three years ahead of you in their journey. Yeah. And someone who has just found out this week. And Absolutely. And this is the start of their journey and they can hear this mm. and know that there is. Things will be okay. It, it will get better. Yes. And look, we have the fantastic benefit here in Australia of, you know, the medication I take. The antiviral, it's, you know, yes, it's on the PBS. So, you know, and if you go heads up, go to Chemist Warehouse for all your prescriptions. They're so (laughs) much cheaper. You know, I pay less than $20 a month for my medication. And, you know, somewhere in a parallel universe, you know, laws or something might exist where, you know, I could sue the absolute shorts off, you know, the person who gave me HSV. And, you know, claim like, you know, a lifetime's worth of medications and things like that. But you know what? I just, I don't want to go back there. Like, I don't want to make that person part of my journey or feature in my journey again. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is like a nice little like benign but malicious daydream sort of <laughs> thought. I'll just invoice you for $20 for the rest of my life. Every oh, month. Yeah. But, you know, I, I take one, one pill every day and you know it's very cost effective i am very fortunate um and to be honest like i'm a person who also wears orthotics like for my feet i have more issues with my feet than i do with like med- and today you're in thongs yes i my arches will probably hate me for this later but um i it's very straightforward um in terms of yeah just treatment and medication and stuff i go to my doctor sort of once a month once a month once every six months and just sort of get a new script and that's it. It's like, oh, yeah, you're, you're fine, still taking this. And every now and again at the chemist, they'll be like, oh, this is a regular medication you take. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's fine. I've never had any issues. Before we move on, and I want to talk about some of your fringe shows, mm. is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to talk about? Mm. Actually, yeah. After the, the early years of fog, after diagnosis, I went on my own journey. Um, I decided to explore kink. And years after that, um, I've 
I've come out as poly. And, you know, your listeners are probably wondering, it's like, how on earth does she manage being poly with an STI? Like, does everyone in the poly have the STI? And the answer is no. My partner of next next month, it's seven years. Uh, he does not have an STI. He never has. And no one else in the poly does. Yeah. It's just managed with communication. And when I say communication, it's not the afterthought of like, oh, by the way, yeah, like, you know, when you're in the the heat of the moment of like, oh yeah, by the way, before you stick it in, like, this is what you should know. <laughs> Pick your time. Yeah. Um, I always I never have the conversation at that point. Everyone has their own method. But um it was something that I was very upfront about. Like my partner then had the conversation with his other partner and she had the conversation with her other partner as if they were all comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, And look, it almost saying it out loud like that makes it sound like, you know, approval of like the council or something like that. But, um, you know, everyone was very aware. And because I came to it, I'm like, yes, this is part of, you know, my who who my physical body is and you know these are the options so when disclosing I always come at it from a very informed perspective of I don't expect the person that I'm telling to know what I know yeah I have years of knowledge up my sleeve so the process of discussing with someone is this is something that I want you to be aware and informed about so I have an STI I have herpes I manage it with daily medication and I do my best to look after myself. It can also be managed to an extent, I suppose, for penis owners with, you know, things like condoms and, you know, dental dams and things like that. Or maybe, you know, like certain things just aren't done. Like, and I always say like, I won't make you do anything that you're not comfortable with. Yeah. So, you know, and I remember saying to my partner when we first started dating and such, like, I understand if you're not comfortable going down on me. And that didn't stick. He's a great, great enthusiast. <laughs> but um, I, I wanted him to know that, that yeah. you know, simply because I might enjoy particular things. It's like I'm not going to push, uh, particularly in that moment of, you know, telling someone and sort of letting it settle in. I'm like, I'm not going to make you do anything you're not comfortable with. So. I, I want the person that I'm telling to feel informed and affirmed, but also like they can ask me questions and, you know, things I've done for partners in the past is, um, you know, even when Polly or not, I've said, you know, if you would feel more comfortable speaking to a medical professional, you know, we can book an appointment either at my GP, which I'll pay for, um, or go to a place like sexual health. HQ and we can chat to one of the nurses or doctors there and you can ask the questions there and you can get straight answers. And there's great cheat sheets I'll call on their website as well um, because you've Mm. you've had this conversation more than once. So if there's a listener Mm. out there that's about to have this conversation Mm. for the first time, Mm. jump onto the website and you'll probably find that there'll be something there that'll be really useful that will answer Mm. a lot of those questions that you're going to get thrown at and go, hang on a minute, I'm already emotional and I don't know, you know, don't say the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah, you know, you can just simply, you know, refer it and go, let's go and speak to someone together. Yeah, absolutely. And I I wish I had known more about a place like Sexual Health HQ at the time. The only resource that at the time of my diagnosis 10 years ago that I was aware of was 
my GP. I suppose to anyone who has either been very recently diagnosed or someone who has, you know, also lives with HSV, you know, I've been empowered to this point by, you know, all of the people and the friends of people I'm close with who have disclosed to me. And this is really sort of for them, but you're not as defective as you think you are. And stuff does get better. It absolutely does. There's so many people and resources and stuff out to to help you. You just alluded to it. When you go mm. poly, then you've got to have these difficult conversations mm. <laughs> on a little bit more frequent than if you've just got one partner. Yeah, I would say that, you know, with the benefit of having had these conversations a lot, like I'm very comfortable having them. Like job interviews, they get better every time. They're easier. Yeah, pretty much, um, you know, answering a similar sort of set of questions and or concerns does does really get easier and on the whole in the 10 odd years that you know I I've lived with Nesti and you know been exploring kink and alternative relationship styles that I found the kink world incredibly accepting yeah. um and incredibly open-minded uh in comparison to places like uh dating apps yeah and I suppose like your Tinder, Bumble, and similar. Yeah, I just found those spaces and the people in those spaces like a lot more accepting. Um, and particularly early in my journey, that was incredibly healing. It was that feeling of being seen as me, and that's when I realised that how I was feeling and how I was seen as a person were different. That mm. other people didn't see me as defective as I felt, and that's a real sort of like tear away point mentally where then like the healing really does get easier the mental healing is there a bit of a sisterhood when you're with your friends that acquaintances that people that you know that also are positive and it's an easier support group hmm. um i mean we don't have a group chat or anything like that <laughs> but like it's nice knowing that each other exist yeah not that i message any of my friends or anyone i know about like you know oh yeah you know this is my latest itch or this is my latest medication or something like that you know we just we just know each other exist and we know we're not alone and i think that is just incredibly important and even if it's you know being in a room with another couple where you know um one of them you know, lives with an STI or something, you're just like, they're happy. They're happy and that's wonderful. Like their whole lives are not defined by that. I have a friend who's HIV and he turned around and said, it's like going to the other side of the world, jumping on a cruise ship and meeting someone that's from Perth Mm. in which you walk past each other on the street, would never speak to them. But the fact that you're in a foreign place and you have a connection, oh, you're from Mm. Perth? there's a conversation starter and it resonated with me when he used that. I fully relate to um, that particular analogy. Yeah. It's just, I've become very like casual about it. Like when I say casual, I don't mean casual about my, my sexual health, but just outwardly verbally casual, like when discussing sexual health or myself or someone else, anything like that. If someone says to me, it's just like, oh, you know, I've, I've had to take, you know, antibiotics or a treatment for, you know, syphilis or gonorrhea or, you know, I have HSV as well or, you know, someone might be HIV positive or whatever. I'm just like, it's HSV. I'm just like, oh, yeah, call me too. Yeah, it's not a big deal. We're not making a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah, and I'm not going to instantly grill you about like, 
oh, you know, what medication do you take? Do you medicate every day or just do you medicate with every like flare up? Like, yeah. I'm just like, oh, yeah, cool. Me too. Yeah. 10 years. Cool. Yeah. So I, I, it's become a lot easier to be like, treat it like the, like the cafe, very casual grabbing a coffee sort of a conversation because sexual health with so much sexual content that we're, we're exposed to, you know, particularly in porn and stuff like that. Like, you know, you, you don't often uh, see a condom in porn. Sometimes you do. And that's fine too. Does seeing, you know, protection in porn make it less sexy? No. Does it make my life less sexy? No. Everyone makes their own choices and there's no right or wrong just being informed. Can I, I want to ask a question about your poly. Hmm, go for it. Is it a, I call it a kitchen table poly where you're all sharing the same house or you're friends with everybody or do you just um kitchen table kitchen table poly is probably the best description of what we have yeah i i live with my partner and his other partner so it's just yeah just like living in a group house really but other partners that we've had haven't moved in or like yeah we they they do their own thing and like it's that's a whole other thing yeah. um to sort of just be discussed in any relationship but like you know we live together and that's only been the last two to three years and that's just the three of you in the house uh yeah at the moment we live with another muggle couple as well that's pretty hectic or a big house big house, big house. <laughs> <laughs> oh it makes it affordable on the on all the bills as well huh? uh yeah look it does um but you know we'll be we'll be moving soon so yeah. we're just looking for something different but no it's all gone pretty smoothly to be honest yeah. and if you had said to me 10 years ago, five years ago, or 15 years ago, you know, these are the things that you'll realize about yourself. These are, you know, the journeys that you will go on. These are the things that will change. You know, these are the ways in which you'll be really affirmed about yourself, you know, about sex and pleasure and intimacy and you know the physical aspects and non-physical aspects of that i i think i would have been absolutely bloody bewildered yeah um and just said i don't think i can do that no thank you <laughs> but i i'm i'm a here and i think something that's been incredibly important particularly for my partner my my loved ones so including you know friends and stuff in that and particularly my parents is just to see that i'm okay is that relationship a three-way relationship or is does he have a relationship with you and then has a relationship with his other partner uh that one so it's like a, a v or yeah. he he's the hinge i suppose he's the hinge, yeah. to use That's the words word, yeah. so i'm with my partner have been for 7 years and he has a, an existing relationship of a bit longer i think yeah nine or so years but yeah. like her and I we're not together I always get fascinated to hear people's dynamics because mm. it is the world's your oyster when it comes to certain dynamics mm. yeah definitely um but there's no poly without group chats and a shared calendar oh yeah I mean I like no romance without yeah. finance <laughs> no poly without a shared calendar, calendar so I feel you there and I will say speaking of poly now that you know, the work that I did by myself and the confidence that I built to be able to have difficult conversations, you know, with partners and with disclosure and stuff, I think that predisposed me quite well for like, you know, kitchen table poly isn't everyone's style, but it kind of 
laid a decent amount of groundwork for me to be able to have the like I suppose radically open or radically honest conversations that sort of come with poly of really anything yeah so yeah it's funny how stuff in life just sort of connects so do you have another partner at the moment or just the one uh just the one at the moment but um I have uh dated uh extensively in the in recent years yeah where are you at now? Are you on field? Uh, not on field. Uh, truth is I haven't really ventured onto dating apps um, yeah. all that much since becoming poly, but I'm a part of a couple of really, really lovely community groups, um, one of which is on Telegram, and just it's a non-dating sort of community, but being part of it, just seeing, you know, we've got different chats for everything from like motorbikes, pets, podcasts, general chat, you know, you name it, there's a chat for it sort of thing. And just chatting with other poly people of different ages and different stages and different makeups, like whether it's parallel or kitchen table or just, you know, closer to E&M or, you know, on that borderline of swinging. It's just we're living our lives and just having that, you know, if if you see it, you can be it. And it's really nice to have that really ordinary side of the daily life Polly. Um, you know, you see people balancing, you know, time with other partners, things within their marriages, things with kids. A number of the adults in the Telegram group that I'm a part of and that I've become friends with, they have kids. And it's really nice to see that mundane stuff, as wonderful as it is, because it's the complete, like, non-sexualized side of Polly. Mm. When I suppose there might be a perception out there about polys that we're all sex maniacs yeah. or something like that, whereas like it it takes work, but we want to do it, and yeah, that that's that's it. So I really enjoy the the ordinary side of poly and stuff yeah. as well. You know, we make jokes about you know group calendars that you know some people say you know they might have want to have enough kids to have a starting lineup for a soccer team or something like that. It's like oh, you know. The goal, one of my pals in uh, the chat the other day said, you know, my goal, quote unquote, for Polly is to have, you know, enough people to fill a gaming table and then to have all the streaming services (laughs) within a Polly. So, you know, someone's got Netflix covered, there's Stan, there's Binge, there's Paramount Plus, there's Disney. And I'm just like, oh, that's so relatable. Look, we have vanilla friends and then we have what we just say, uh, king friends. Yeah. And and simple as that. Mm -hmm. And when we will have people over for a barbecue and everyone mm-hmm. brings their kids. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's not just an orgy all the time. Yeah, like, it's just so that, ordinary but, looking, yeah. devastatingly ordinary looking. Yeah, you know, except when one gets COVID, then, you know, then yeah. everyone gets COVID. <laughs> Tends to happen. Yeah, STD, we've got that covered, but the yep. COVID, nah, mm. that's the one that gets us. Yeah, look. But everything's manageable, yeah, right? So, exactly. um, all right. Now I'm going to use your feet as a segue. Oh, and okay. Because your feet, mm. you mentioned before that you need to wear uh, inner soles. Mm. Now I've been to watch a burlesque show, mm. and I've seen the boots. Yep. And the shoes that you wear. Mm-hmm. A, you looked incredibly hot, beautiful, and you know how to put on a great show. So thank you. That, that, but then now back to your feet. How the fuck do you manage? <laughs> because, 
because my wife where she's got a pair of like knee-high boots yeah the places she looks fucking great for about 35 seconds mm. and then after that she's like all right gotta get these fucking things off on my feet are killing like, look, like, this has been her. great, but get so, me on my back, yeah. please. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about, the, we'll start, the segue is your feet. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, um, with orthotics, uh, it has definitely been basically if the shoe doesn't have sort of a back on it around sort of the heel, then it's likely orthotics won't fit in there. And the only sort of option, um, particularly in a season like summer, um, when, you know, there's all, all manner of like slides and, you know, sandals and things like that is you've got to stick Velcro dots on the bottom of your orthotics and then onto your shoes as well. And any performer will tell you that the sound of Velcro ripping is a distinctly unsexy one. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's only a very small amount of context where like the ripping of Velcro is say anticipatory <laughs> or remotely appealing. Um, so I choose not to. Um, I am wearing flip-flops at the moment, but I know these will be a short wear. Uh, when it comes to pleaser boots, I do have to uh, buy my shoes fairly carefully. And we have the great benefit of having a business like Diamond Heels here in WA. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other great shops like Play and Pleasure and stuff also stock pleasers and things like that for industry folks. And you've just got to get your right size. And I've found that I just absolutely have to account for my orthotics in every single pair of shoes that I buy. And that includes for burlesque. I assume you're probably talking about my performance at Licentious or something yes. like that. Yes. So those shoes, like they have a bit of a platform underneath the ball of the foot and they have a bit of a thicker heel. So you won't see me in any sort of, um, you know, nail thin uh, heels like in your Louboutins or something like right. that. Like it's got to be a bit of a thicker heel and, you know, ideally something sort of under the ball of the foot. But, um, yeah, it's just at the end of the day, it's maybe about four minutes um, and shoes could be changed sort of thing. But no. Last, last thing on, first thing off. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, no, and some of those shoes are actually remarkably comfortable and having friends who work in – basically work as sex workers or dancers or, you know, just in the burlesque industry. There's a decent blend um, for some folks. You know, we just have folks in the industry that do both. You know, they'll wear the big like six, eight, ten inch platform pleasers and just find them incredibly comfortable, you know, particularly for pole dancing. I've encountered a number of folks who say that, you know, when they switch down from, I don't know, say a ten inch platform to like a, an eight or a six inch platform, they found their weight distribution very different and yes. it affected the... Yeah, well, the centre of gravity changes. Yes, uh, and it affected, like, their ability to, I suppose, twirl or whirl with certain yeah. tricks. And, you know, not even just on a pole, like if you're circus or anything like that or doing floor work or something like that, it can affect it. But, um, you know, there's so many people who wear um, pleasers and big, like, step-on-me sort of boots. No. Exactly. I love them. They look great. Thank you. But yeah, I just freak out when I think, oh, get them like, <laughs> I like to see my wife just wear a pair of joggers because I'm like, just keep the, keep your feet comfortable. Yeah. Just look after yeah, yourself. Look after Please your yeah. don't fall over. <laughs> <laughs> now, how long have you been doing burlesque? Oh, burlesque. Uh, in August this year, seven years. So six and a bit. Yeah. And what got you into it? Uh, I did. Yeah. Um, so, uh, about six years ago, I decided to just try a burlesque class, a six week class, just as a dare to myself. Yep. I signed up on the day that the class was due to start and, you know, it was six weeks, you know, about $150 and there was no pressure to perform in like the, the grad show or the showcase. 
yeah. uh, at the end of those six weeks. So I thought, you know what? I'll give it a go. And if I don't want to perform, if I don't enjoy it, there's no obligation to perform and I can just see. Yeah. And I loved it. I, I fell madly, madly in love with it. And as someone who had some really awful dance teachers uh, growing up, that was also really, really healing. Yep. Like I wouldn't be. You're not teaching burlesque at that age. So no. I realised that. Wasn't um, but I mean, like in a burlesque group routine, like people will switch around so you're not like sort of stuck at the back. Um, you know, you will have a moment like at the front and you won't be yelled at like I was in other dance codes for putting a foot wrong. Like the audience is just completely different and they're so enthusiastic uh, at burlesque shows. Yeah, it's all support. Like it's like mm-hmm. if you've fuck up in it, no one cares. No one knows. No. Only you know. Yeah, and exactly. Just like, you know what? You are brave. You're out there. Yeah, having fun. Yeah. And it really shows. And that kind of turned into first class in January turned into another class into another and another and another. And I was doing my first solo performance by August of that same year. Wow. So, and yeah, being Camden very happily since then and have had a, a range of really fantastic opportunities. And I'm really excited to go into another fringe season. Yeah. Then to go from group burlesque, then you go do a solo burlesque. Yeah. And then you take it to the next level and you want to emceeing? Yeah, hosting. Hosting. Uh, I started hosting probably about two or three years after I started uh, performing as Camden. And I love it. I'm madly, madly in love with hosting. And I recently appeared on another industry podcast, WA Expose. And I said to the host, I'll be interested to see your reaction to this, that I'm actually a lot or calmer with a microphone in my hand hosting a show than I actually am performing solo and I suppose like not talking, if you will, which is a great irony because many people find public speaking terrifying or, you know, being recorded terrifying, whereas I don't. I'll I'll reference always going for a job interview. Mm. I was able to flip the switch and that energy from the nerves being negative into a positive. Mm. And it'd be like seeing you at a bar oh oh i don't have the courage to go up and say Mm. hello we'll use that courage and flip it because by not going up you've said no yeah so if you don't go for the job you've 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 rejected yourself from that job i've definitely found that yeah a lot a lot of life is sort of like a job interview but as someone who does does live with anxiety and does like experience you know feelings of catastrophizing you know feeling like the world's going to explode or you know that i i just shouldn't do that is you know it's it's definitely rejecting yourself but you know if you think about it as something i've learned through therapy it's like what is the worst possible outcome is like going up to talking to someone at the bar is the person says no and my metamor will often say it's like no 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 that that's not the worst possible outcome the worst possible outcome is if bar explodes into flames and you never get to like say hello to that person and you die that is the worst absolute worst serial killer possible (laughs) outcome um it's like well what if the person does say i don't know no to the request of like a chat or to buy them a drink or something like that it's like well oh that's okay like you know i might just take 20 seconds in the toilet and then just go back to my night like yeah yeah, but the best possible outcome is like make a new friend that's sort of it and one of the sort of I suppose let's call it a motivational quote that I see occasionally on my scrolls on social media is that 
all it takes is just 20 seconds of courage. Yeah. Like just 20 seconds. If you think about how short 20 seconds is, you know, it's going to say hello to someone. It's going to, you know, say, start the conversation of like, hey, I've got something I'd like to share with you or hey, I feel we've been getting along really well lately or you know it's just it's just 20 seconds of courage of you know even going back to the job interview thing of clicking save on it and not scrolling past it like I'm I'm off the 20 seconds of insane courage and for some reason that just translates really well for me into hosting like I just buzz up on stage and you know you've been to at least at least one licentious show you know seeing Maya in her element, it's something like I can entirely relate to. Yeah. I didn't really know much about burlesque. Mm. Full Monty was my first burlesque movie. And that was when I knew anything about it. Yeah. And subsequent to that, then I'd watched um, Moulin Rouge. And I hadn't been to a burlesque show Mm. until I went and watched Maya. For the mm. first time. Yep. And that was at, What a great show to have your and, first experience of burlesque. And that was at Belmont. Yep. And my date for the night was her mum. Cool. <laughs> mum, and, mum attention is yeah. an angel. And so um, my wife, I can't remember. No, she was at, she already had dinner plans that night. And mm. we were going out afterwards. And I was like, oh, Maya's asked me to go watch this show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go. And then when Maya sent me the ticket, she was like, oh, my mum's coming along to this show. So here's a number mm-hmm. and she'll meet you at the front. Yep. And when I met her and she's saying, oh, I'm also, you know, I did the show last year. And mm. her mum is absolutely beautiful and wonderful. Mm. And so that was my first experience. And that was mm. only about three months ago that show was. Yeah, wow. And she just, and she, she'd only just said that week that she was pregnant. Yep. And then... We went to the show a couple of weeks ago and I fell in love with it. Mm. And I have been a really big advocate of the show mm. to be able to go, if you're going to a fringe show, it's 35 bucks and you're mm-hmm. going to get to see 20, 30 people all. In their element. In their element. Mm. And I was yelling the whole time. And the only reason I was yelling so much is when I went with to the first one, mm. Maya's mum, she must have lost her voice in that one yes. hour. She did not stop <laughs> screaming. And you're right. She's like, if you're up there and there's 100 people and it's completely silence, mm. you feel awkward. Like no one's yeah. having a good time. Mm. So she's like, when you go to a burlesque show, you scream, you clap, you yell, you whistle. Yep. Like Make the animal make noises. The make noises, like, like, make the Viking war call yeah, noises. Do all of like, that. All of it. So get to a show, just scream off the top of your lungs yeah. and just have a really good time. And so when, yeah, when we went, we were in line an hour beforehand. Mm. I wanted front row and mm-hmm. I was there to support. So when Fringe went for sale, I was straight on and got those tickets yep. to, to be able to awesome. go and support it because it's a, it's really is, it's just probably one of the best shows to be able to just, yeah. I loved it. And it's just, you know, who doesn't like looking at beautiful people in Yeah. Um, and I think there's so many, speaking as a performer, there's so many and so much um, telling us, you know, that we're not doing things right in like so many aspects of life. Um, and, you know, saying that as, you know, a very dyed in the wool social media over consumer. But, you know, when you put a foot wrong on stage, whether it's in a group routine or as a, a solo performance, like what I might do, like 
at my licentious performance, my boots just would not grip the floor <laughs> and I just kept slipping. But you know what? I like to think I made it some sort of like amusing or sexy or whatever, but like seeing and being able to express ourselves in a way that we can't in our ordinary lives. It's not to say that our ordinary lives or muggle lives or daywalker lives are inadequate. It's just another mode of expression for us, whether that's through dance or hosting. And, you know, it's the wonderful environment that Maya creates is the audience can come along and express themselves. Like, you know, come and just be enthusiastic. Um, You know, get some divine inspiration um, for, you know, what you might like to explore sort of this year. But I think Maya has truly done an incredible job. I'm, I'm in awe of her. Um, at the wonderful space that she has created with the licentious shows and her classes when she does them. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, I'm going to wrap this up now and just say thank you so much. Um, any final words before we... Ooh. I think I'll just finish them with my usual words that I I say as much as I can. Um, be sexy, be safe and hydrate. Thank you so much for having me on and giving this opportunity to talk about my sparkly life um, and and otherwise. My pleasure. Thank you for coming along. This is Kinky Confessions, the podcast. <laughs>